Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books podcast, and I'm your host, Emily Van Knett. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day, uh, Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. for curbside pickup and masked in-store browsing. You can also shop online at www.skylightbooks.com, and you can check out all of our great virtual events we've been doing on our Crowdcast page. Um, Just search Skylight Books. Now, on to our show. We are excited to have Liz Brown here to discuss her new book, Twilight Man, Love and Ruin in the Shadow of Hollywood and the Clark Empire. Her writing has appeared in Book Forum, Design Observer, Elle Decor, London Review of Books, Los Angeles Times, and New York Times Book Review. She's joined today for a conversation with Alex Ross. Alex Ross has been the music critic for The New Yorker since 1996. His first book was the international bestseller, The Rest is Noise, Listening to the 20th Century. Uh, It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and won a National Book Critics Circle Award. His second book was the essay collection, Listen to This. His third book, Wagnerism, Art and Politics in the Shadow of Music, was published last year, appearing on best of 2020 lists in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Chicago Tribune, and the Financial Times. In 2008, he was named a MacArthur Fellow. So we'll begin today with a little reading from Liz from her new book, Twilight Man, followed by a discussion with Alex Ross. Enjoy. Thank you. I'm going to read a passage from the first chapter of Twilight Man, and it's not actually about the Twilight Man in question, whose name is Harrison Post, but it's about the Clark mining empire that he fell into, and about Will Clark, who would become his eventual lover. Few people in America have been born into such riches, and yet Will's first year was marked by sorrow. He was only a few months old when his two-year-old sister, Jessie, contracted pneumonia. She died in April 1878, weeks after his first birthday. Montana may have been the origin of the Clark's phenomenal wealth, but it was also where the family buried two children. That fall, they sailed for France. Paris was in the midst of its own boom, having emerged from the Battle of the Commune. In the Tuileries, gardeners tended the once scorched, now blooming gardens. Up on Montmartre, workmen toiled on the white dome of the Sacre-Cœur Basilica, rising against the skyline. Hot air balloons floated above the Seine. 
Will and his family arrived in a city newly illuminated with arc lamps. Far from the belching smokestacks and pits of roasting ore, 13 million people flocked to the Exposition Universelle, where they heard Alexander Graham Bell's telephone ring and Thomas Edison's phonograph warble. In the Trocadero Gardeners, Gardens, visitors walked inside the colossal copper head of the Statue of Liberty, the New Republic's gift to commemorate America's abolition of slavery and its embrace of independence. Just a few months later in January, Edison patented the incandescent light bulb. The electrification of the world had already begun and now the pace quickened. Telegraph wires, telephone lines, light sockets, all needed the red ductile metal that Will's father was pulling from the earth, or rather his legions of miners were extracting, doing the dangerous poisonous work of scraping and plunging and smelting while acrid green smog filled the air in butte and sulfuric soot settled on the grass and coated the window sills and the Clark fortune continued to swell. For 13 centuries, from the coronation of Clovis I until Louis XVI was stripped of his title in 1792, France had had a king. Since then, the country had roiled between revolution and backlash, republic and empire, until finally, after the disastrous Franco-Prussian War, Napoleon III would, was deposed in 1870. The French monarchy might be over, and yet the imperial impulse still lived on. It wasn't driven by the divine right of kings, but of capital. America called itself a republic, but as Will's father proved, if a man owned enough of its resources, along with its banks, postal services, and utilities, he might as well consider himself sovereign. In Europe, Will's father had discovered a new game, collecting art. Among the vestiges of faded empires, he could imbue his new world wealth with old world prestige. He gathered up the remnants of the bygone dynasties to decorate his palace back in Butte. Tapestries, rugs, vases, ceramics, stained glass. While his wife, Kate, remained with their children, cosseted by nannies and governesses and tutored in French and German as befitting royal issue, Will's father began a ritual of seasonal migration. He spent most of the year in America, presiding over his growing kingdom, returning each winter to his family. Six years passed, and it was deemed time for the Clark children to come back to America, to learn their own language, to discover how much they possessed. 20 years before, Will's father had driven a team of oxen from Missouri to Colorado, when the nation had consisted of 25 states wrenched apart by war. Now it had been knit back together and stretched from one end of the continent to the other. The railroads hurtled people and goods across the land, prosperity bloomed, and much of it belonged to Will's family. And so the day came when his mother took him to Grand Central and sent him off alone, the off alone across the country to Los Angeles, where his grandmother lived and his aunt ran a school. At the end of the journey, when the boy finally arrived, he alighted at a two-story wooden depot 
surrounded by freight yards, pasture land, and mountains. It was quieter than Paris, quieter than New York, quieter than Butte. Not that Will would have had much memory of the raucous mining town. Los Angeles had grown at a different pace from the rest of the country. No waterway or harbor had designated it a strategic spot for trade. No mineral rushes had swept through. No smokestacks fumed. Adjacent to the frontier, but apart from the boom, Los Angeles had idled. It was a ranching town. The mining years had been good ones. The demand for beef in the foothills had been constant. But these pastures weren't a destination for fortune seekers. A small housing boom had spurted and fizzled a decade earlier. The former Pueblo's rhythms belong not to the incessant propulsive churn of industry, but to seasons, to grazing schedules and harvests. That was about to change. There would be men like W.A. surveying the arid hill of Butte who intuited the riches to come. They understood even better than the copper baron how people and their desires were raw material to be turned into commodity. Harrison Gray Otis, a farmer's son from Ohio, had just been made editor of the Los Angeles Daily Times. Within a few years, he'd blanket his Midwestern homeland with pamphlets, advertising the orange groves and mountains that now greeted young Will Clark. The town had to pay a $600,000 subsidy to persuade Southern Pacific to build a depot since Los Angeles wasn't already a center for trade or industry. But Otis had foresight. Eventually, they'd tear down the modest depot and build the arcade station in its place. All the better for a picturesque welcome among William Wolfskill's orange groves. Staging was essential. None of this meant anything to Will. For the boy, Los Angeles was simply where his grandma lived. The carriage wheels clacked over the road. Water trickled through the zanjas, the ditches irrigating the town. Three mountain ranges ringed the Los Angeles basin, like a cup tipping into the Pacific Ocean. It wasn't granite and quartz and streaks of metal beneath the Earth's crust, but a cretaceous slurry of sand and oil. Here, land was as unfixed as land could be, and yet the boy was secure, safe within his father's extraordinary realm. They trundled past Los Angeles Park, once a camp on the western outskirts of the old Pueblo. Now a white picket fence kept out stray cows and sheep. A church steeple rose high above Second Street. A new grid had been laid down over the one the Spaniards had built a century early, earlier, as if no one had been there first. His grandmother lived on Olive Street, named for the trees that lined the road. Their silvery leaves glinted in the sun. Olive was the same word in French and English. Will was there to learn his native language, just as Los Angeles was about to learn its most enduring lesson to sell itself. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Liz. Um, uh, it's such a pleasure to uh, talk to you about this uh, amazing book. Um, and yeah, I was, I was just so transfixed by this, by this narrative. Um, 
we know each other and, and you'd already told me some bits and pieces uh, of, of the narrative and I knew a few bits and pieces myself, but um, it's just astonishing how many different worlds uh, this book is going to take you through and sort of this, this world of Montana and the mining and this, this kind of um, uh, shadowy gangsterish world of, of mining and, and politics and, and uh, uh, in, in Montana and then you shift to Los Angeles and it sort of moves into this kind of this Hollywood and, and Bohemia and the, and the kind of gay netherworld um, and then it sort of I won't spoil the remaining parts of the book, but it just it just spirals into uh, you know it's a roller coaster ride. You have no idea uh, where it's going to go next. Um, but it's just an extraordinary story of of America, I suppose, and and rapid transformations uh, of of America, and also about money and how money drives people insane um, and turns them uh, uh, makes them do horrible things. So there's just many many layers to it. But um, but yes, to start off, I mean, how did you discover this story. And of course, you have uh, your own uh, connection to this fascinating and strange family, the, the Clark uh, family. Uh, and if, if people know any member of the family, it's probably uh, Huguette Clark, uh, yeah. who was the famous um, miser, uh, uh, a woman who died at a, at a very advanced age. Um, and there are, all, there are all kinds of interesting stories told about her. But but yeah, tell about how, how you, you stumbled across this tale. Sure. Well, thank you for all of that. Um, I, I had, my grandmother was the niece of Will Clark Jr., the Will that I read, just read about. Um, and it's a connection by marriage he had married her aunt and she was named for that aunt uh alice mcmanus clark and was sort of doted on by will and alice and was kind of a surrogate daughter to them in a way um and spent a lot of time with them in their mansion in west adams in los angeles and traveled with them and um and then when her aunt died she, in 1918 she still will still stayed in her life and was sort of this benevolent figure. Um, and so I would hear about Aunt, Aunt Alice and Uncle Will as a kid growing up, but not, but they were dis very distant. And it was, you know, nearly a century had passed, I guess, you know, or maybe not that that much time, but still a, a couple generations. Um, and then I had come, and then my grandmother passed away in 2003. And I had come out to my parents a few years before, told them I was gay. It had not been an easy revelation for either of us. And we were at a, a prolonged impasse for a long time when I came back from my grandmother's funeral. And I was, I was just sort of drawn to try to find some kind of heirloom or something of her, a trace of her in her house. This was in San Francisco where she lived. Mm -hmm. And I found this photograph of this gorgeous young man, 1922, inscribed to her. He looked like Rudolph Valentino. <laughs> and, I, and nobody knew who it was. So I just took it and I said, okay, this is what I'm taking. And um, and then independently, I knew that there had been these whispers about Uncle Will possibly being gay. 
And I knew there had been this very sensational book that had been written about the Clark family in the 40s by a disgruntled former employee and that the family had tried to buy up all the copies. And so independently, I started hunting down that book and um, it's, it's called The Clarks, An American Phenomenon. And it's by uh, William D. Mangum, uh, who had been Will Clark's secretary or, or accountant. accountant. And um, I found the book and I was reading the book and I came across this passage that referred to, you know, the unnatural vices, the perverted practices, like very, various heightened language for Will's homosexuality. And, um, and then I came to the part where it talks about his estate and how he had divided it up and that the, the bulk of it, or one of, the, one of the largest bequests was to his perverted disciple, Harrison Post. <laughs> and that was how I put together that that photograph was, was my great uncle's lover. And that for whatever reason, I felt I needed to save it. I wanted it. Um, and by then, you know, my grandmother had passed away. I couldn't ask her anything about it. And I don't know if she would have been comfortable with me asking about it, but it, she also kept that photo for 80 years. So it was in a drawer in her- In her room. dresser in her, in yeah. her bedroom, you know. So I started kind of, kind of just pecking away at this story. And then I'm, I, um, the librarian, librarians at the Clark Library here in LA were very helpful. And they kind of, they said, you know, we've heard a little bit about Harrison Post. He has a strange story. And then they pointed me toward um, a woman. They connected me with a woman in the Bay Area who turned out to be the, it's very hard to track all these connections. It's all very circuitous, but she turned out to be the niece of his foster sister. Mm -hmm. He had these journals and scrapbooks and address books that had Carol Lombard and Greta Garbo in them. And, um, and as I was researching this, I started to discover his story was a kind of rags to riches to rags to, I don't know what you would call it, you know, mm. he, it's like a fairy tale where he sort of is a shop clerk that meets Will Clark and is swept into this fabulous wealthy world of wealth. And then he becomes prey for his own family who end up blackmailing and extorting and taking over his fortune. So that's half of the book. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Um, so it's basically, I mean, just to, to sort of, so the, the, the money comes from William Andrews Clark Sr., uh, who just, just makes an absolute, just monstrous uh, uh, load of money in, in Montana with, with copper mines and sort of all kinds of other uh, investments. Um, and so a lot of it goes to Will Jr., uh, who moves to LA, who's, who's gay. Um, and uh, who really devotes himself to the arts um, and music. Uh, he's the, the founder of the LA Philharmonic um, and he builds up this extraordinary collection of Oscar Wilde 
manuscripts, which become the core of the uh, Clark uh, Library, um, uh, which is a, a splendid uh, building. Um, and, and then some of the other money goes to to get, which is a whole other, we don't even need to yeah. get into her, you know, uh, but that's a completely bizarre tale. That's been told, there's been a sort of a book uh, about her. Um, but, but your side of the story, it's, um, I just love how it just sort of keeps subdividing, because first you have this, this incredible, larger than life sort of charismatic monster, uh, uh, the, the, the father, um, uh, with just this huge energy and, and ambition and sort of will to dominate, you know, and then there's, and then there's, Will, who sort of comes across as sort of this, you know, quite charming, you know, character at first. He's gay and 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 sort of you know just loves loves culture and and sort of wants to kind of use the, the money to sort of support culture. But then sort of there's sort of sort of shadows that sort of begin to gather around him as well. Which I think for you, I mean, this was sort of a turn that it took for you as you told the story because at first you were thought. Well, let's let's just tell the story of this kind of you know uh, this this wealthy kind of gay man who was sort of surrounded by scandal at a certain point was sort of almost the uh, sort of victim of circumstances. But then kind of you became more uneasy about him as as a figure as you went along, right? Yes, I I did. I I thought I was going to write. I thought I was going to recover a gay romance. That right. I thought I am restoring this forgotten, neglected, buried, excluded history. And that's there, that's in there, that's a kernel of it, but I found that kernel is located inside of this much larger, darker world. Um, and it, and my also my initial response to the book by Buck Mangum was very suspicious and very oppositional. I, you know, I felt like I was writing a counter narrative in a way uh, because he's just so virulent in his homophobia and his animosity. Um, but as I started to dig and as I started to see a progression in Will's own biography, he was on the one hand, this wonderfully benevolent person. And then you start to discover he has these demons. I don't know, that's you know maybe a nice word. Um, he seems to have the, he takes an interest in his housekeeper's son that is, I guess the term we might use today is problematic, but um, you, you know, uh, you, he just starts to become this darker figure and you realize that he has grown up with a capacity for corruption and privilege and entitlement. And for as much as he was a lovely uncle to my grandmother, he was also on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, taking advantage of his power over people who didn't have any power. And that's, you know, that's um, the picture that, he starts to become a very tormented and, and dark figure. And, and yet he was persecuted at the same time right. for being gay. Um, and it gets, it's a, it's tangled. I want, yeah, I wanted to write a gay romance and halfway through I'm writing, I realized, no, I'm writing this massive tragedy of 
you know, of legacies of corruption and predation. <laughs> right, and just have money. I mean, he was, even though he was gay and had this marginal and extremely vulnerable status because of being, being gay, because he was so immensely wealthy, he could protect himself uh, yeah. from persecution, like sort of most gay men uh, and lesbians at that time. And also he could sort of use the money to get what he wanted and yeah. get whom, you know, uh, he wanted, you know, maybe in a way that he didn't even realize how it was. Yeah. Corrupt. He may have had a more innocent picture of himself, but, but I'm sure the relationship with, with Harrison is interesting because it, it begins as, um, as a kind of romance. I mean, they're, they're mm -hmm. lovers, um, but then it sort of evolves into something else. Yes. Um, you know, even if, you know, there may be other young men, younger men uh, yeah. who, who are part of Will Jr.'s life, he continues to support Harrison. Um, and, and there is, is this, they seem to turn to a friendship or a kind of, you know, it, 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 that, I mean, that, that relationship seemed to be kind of pretty benevolent all the way through, and yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, he was, yeah. um, uh, and ended that, up getting this, this incredible bequest. Um, yes. I sort of started to think of their relationship as a template and that, and that he had met Harrison when, Har when Harrison was a shop clerk in San Francisco, he, Harrison was about 22 and there was a 20 year age gap and he swept him off to LA where Harrison then became this kind of Hollywood socialite who mm -hmm. swanned about with movie stars and other society figures. And, um, and their bond remained strong the entire time, but I do think it, you know, what may have been romantic and sexual then became something more about a companionship. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I know I have the impulse to kind of map our contemporary versions of relationships onto the onto this one and say they were partners or something, but I, you know, I feel like the best word is kinship for what, what they established ultimately. Mm -hmm. And I think um, in a lot of non, I don't know if I would say non-normative, but I, I do think that in a lot of homosexual friendships, relationships, like there are these, gradations of intimacy that sometimes include sexuality, sometimes include romance, friendship, and that in a way there's more of a, there aren't del these, these delineations that say are so familiar to us through heterosexuality um, that are so clear cut. And um, I think, you know, Oscar Wilde is a presence in the book um, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, even though his relationship with Lord Alfred Douglas was extremely contentious and um, in, in a way destructive, I also think they, they sort of give you a kind of template too of um, something that's that has this very intense romantic aspect, but it isn't only that. And they certainly, their sex lives extended to other people, you know, they weren't these monog they weren't a monogamous couple, you know, in that sense. Right. Yeah. And people have, 
you know, now been asking the same questions about Oscar Wilde himself and, and you know, his predatory capacity, yeah. even as he was uh, yeah. uh, victimized and, and sort of sent to prison. So it's just many, many kind of layers of complexity. Yeah. Um, so, and then there's Harrison himself, uh, who is really emerges as the central figure of the book. I mean, he is the the Twilight Man. Um, but you know, first we go through the you know the the, the Clarks and and their history before he really uh, uh, enters the scene. Um, and and he really feels like the 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 hero of the book in in a lot of ways, it's sort of a tragic hero. But but he is he is pretty much an innocent, you know, and he's sur yeah. surrounded by by um, uh, sort of people who run the gamut from from uh, sort of monstrous to problematic to just, you know, bizarre um, uh, to, you know, his own family who are an incredible bunch of people. Um, and yet he himself is kind of, you know, he just seems to be sort of drifting along and, you know, he's so lucky at first to, to have been stumbled uh, to have stumbled into this, and then he becomes so unlucky. You know, uh, mm -hmm. his, his fate is is just is. You know, again, I don't want to give away anything, but it's it's quite miserable. Um, but how? You know, I mean, who was he really, and where where did he come from? Um, which he sort of emerged from the the the, the shadows and yes. and sort of take on various guises. He seemed to like kind of play acting or sort of adopting different personae. Yes, and who was he really? He was born Albert Weiss Harrison, and his mother was the daughter of a theater impresario uh, or opera house impresario from Galveston, Texas. So from his mother's side, he there was a legacy of wealth, but from his, his father was a clothing salesman from uh, Russia uh, and um, had and had immigrated, uh, I think, at a pretty early age, and um, they married and then and divorced very early, and he was sort of bounced around with this kind of itinerant, charismatic but alcoholic salesman father, and he he was in the vicinity of wealth his whole life, but never quite in his whole early life, but never actually possessed it, and. Um, I, I think of him as, uh, you know, as this naive, this naive figure. I almost think of him sort of like, you know, it, it, as the anti-Ripley <laughs> in a Patricia Highsmith <laughs> book. Right. Like, he just has no ability to kind of strategize his way out of, you know, everyone else strategizes and sees him as this mark, as a kind of target. And, um, right. He almost, in some ways, he feels so un-American to me because he's not driven in that way. He's kind of a dreamer. He's not this hustler. Um, and he sort of lands in this incredible, in this incredible, in this incredible wealth, which will ultimately trap him. Um, but I think, I mean, I think if he, he, at some point he decides he wants to be, a, he might be a bookbinder Another point, he decides he will own a hotel. Um, he just sort of drifts and and um, he seems like a man out of time in a way, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, and there's kind of, I had this strange feeling that, that at the same time there was kind of this 
contentment with him or kind of kind of an acceptance of of just whatever stage of his life he just seemed to kind of somehow move along and, and not become consumed. I mean, the injustice that was done to him. Yes. Was just staggering with what his family did to him. You know, and then he was he was in Norway during World War II and there's Nazis and it's just, you know, just the circumstances of his later life. It's often just really, really sad. And you're yeah. and you're you're enraged on his behalf. And and he's, you know, he's he's trying to, at the end of his life, he's trying to to get it back and sort of fighting for it. But at the same time, it never feels like he's completely consumed by it. He's just these sort of beautiful moments kind of later in life where he's just kind of just still living day by day and, and yeah. aware, kind of drifting along. Yeah, it really was an, an incredible thing to discover these journals and which are from the last two, th about last four years of his life, I'd say. Um, they begin when he has tried to escape his predatory blackmailing sister uh, by fleeing to Norway and they, which is where he ends up thinking he's finding sanctuary just, <laughs> just in time for the Nazis to invade. And, and then more misfortune befalls him. And yet also he is incredibly lucky. He doesn't get killed by the Nazis, no. no. Um, but he is put in uh, internment camps and subject to all kinds of horrible things there. But even there, he has this kind of naive belief that things are gonna work out. And mm. um, one of the most, I mean, some of the most amazing parts of this process were the research and the, and the discoveries of just discovering these journals or uh, discovering there's a POW uh, memoir written in Norway that includes a chapter about Harrison. Yeah, that's amazing. And to see that author's view of Harrison was wonderful. And just to see him in these camps and his kind of enduring all this misfortune and yet also having these moments of kind of sublime, sublime trans moments of sublime of sublimity <laughs> where um, he's listening to men sing and kind mm. of transported um he's not an easy one to pin down you know yeah but he is he is a, a very you know, appealing figure uh, to the end, and and you need that, you know, because yes. the rest of your book is just kind of every face of kind of human monstrousness you can you can think of, uh, uh, and, and the buddy just just kind of bring, bringing that out yes. of people, you know, in 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 ways that are just you know uh, not surprising, but but you know just dismaying to, to read about. But at the center, you do have this 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 guy who just seems to have been just a pretty good guy in, in, in a lot of ways. You know? yeah. yeah, I think you know, I the, someone I thought about as a kind of parallel for him was uh, Lily Bart in House of Mirth. Uh, mm which who is more who is more driven and more, and you know and has her schemes and whatnot but is also this kind of tragic dreamer who keeps who keeps wanting something a little bit better and stumbling stumbling into adversity after adversity um and getting kind of pushed to the margins of high society um and in a way i feel like harrison has those kinds of parallels where he just wants it 
he just has these hopes, but doesn't know how to make them happen. Right, yeah. How did sort of going through with all this sort of, how did it affect you in, in the end, you know, in terms of after years of, of immersion in this and, and, you know, having, you know, a connection with your own family um, mm. as well, did, did you sort of, where did you feel it sort of left you um, in the end in terms of, I suppose, how you fit into all this or, 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 or well, that of, is a good question. Um, <laughs> I think I'm, well, I'll say off the cuff, I'm definitely still figuring that out. Um, mm -hmm. But I had a really lovely phone conversation with my mother last night who has just started reading or is halfway through and mm -hmm. it was very full of it, uh, concerned about how she was going to read it and um, she so far has embraced it and that's been, that's very lovely. Um, mm -hmm. And where I fit in, um, you know, I in the uh, epigraph, it it is a quote from uh, Antigone. Um, the book, I have it right here, and it's um, I have been a stranger here in my own land all my life, um, and I chose that because it's true of Harrison. He's this sort of stranger in his own land, but also because Antigone is the story of a woman who comes to bury her brother. And, yeah. and I think on some level, you know, there are all these sort of, you could call them mystical ways I came to this story, but on some level, it started to feel like this is this, there has been this deep wrong to this man and he needs to be put to rest in a dignified manner. And, and kind of, I guess, coming back to kinship, that there are these way, there are these forms of kinship that aren't necessarily biological, but they're very deep and they're, in this case, I guess, intergenerational, you know? Um, and so I sort of think of it like, and there are all these women that not, there's several women that kind of appear in the story who take care of him. And I feel like, oh, I'm part of that legacy of kind of coming in and trying to help this man through his strange journey. Um, yeah, like his friends in San Francisco. At the, at yeah. We're looking after him and- uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and- yeah, just that it is this wonderful feeling of sort of restitution for someone who just got buried by this steamroller, yeah. <laughs> you know, and and just end up being this kind of, you know, mentioned here and there um, as as sort of this figure that that you sort of snicker about, you know, the sort of the rich man's young gay lover, yes. and you know, um, and just sort of just sort of show his full full history. It does feel like it does feel like writing a wrong in terms of the other side of that. I mean, so, so Clark's name is on the, the library here in LA and, and, and he, he has the status as the founder of the LA Philharmonic. How do you feel people sh today should consider him and reconsider him in, in terms of his, his place? You know, does he, does, he need, does he need to be kind of, you know, how, how, how do we talk about him now? 
I don't know. I think in a way, I mean, there, there are aspects of his life and things he did and I, and may, or may have perpetrated against other people that I don't think are excusable. And, um, so I don't necessarily think he's someone we need to put on a pedestal at the same time he seemed to know that in his own life and he refu he avoided a certain degree of public recognition uh the mm -hmm. statue in Pershing Square that's to commemorate him here in Los Angeles um is a statue of Beethoven it's mm -hmm. not of him and he sort of seemed to have this instinct to hide himself, especially at the end of his life, to kind of shrink away. And he was sort of disentangling himself from the LA Philharmonic um, at, the, at the end. So um, he almost, <laughs> won't say he was canceling himself, but <laughs> he seemed to, he seemed to, he receded. Um, and he was tormented, as, as, as you say. I mean, not necessarily, you know, can't necessarily say that he felt remorse, but, yes. but he was just, he was just a very troubled man. And it wasn't that he was just obliviously preying on people and having a great time, you know. Uh, it, was, it was just very complicated. And, and, he seemed to be spreading his, taking his misery out on other people. Right. Um, I don't know. I wonder if our need to venerate actually gets us. I don't know. I, I mean, I think a lot about philanthropy today and the names on all the buildings and a kind of question is, what are you all hiding and why do you need your name on a building? Because you're probably doing something like addicting millions of people to opiates. Yes, yeah, yeah. I just finished reading Patrick Keefe's <laughs> Empire of Pain, which is a truly shocking yeah, so story I, of, of real ruthlessness, you know, so that's that's a sort of in a different category from someone like Clark, who's, who's not yeah, ruthless. Yeah. No, I don't think he was- the Father ruthless. is another matter. <laughs> but, but I do, but I, he was of, he was definitely of his world, of the Clark Empire, and he learned, uh, he did learn to leverage his power. Um, right. And uh, he's, he's not, in my mind, he's not a hero. Um, I don't know that he's, uh, you know, I don't think I would say he's a, you know, black and white villain, um, yeah. but he does, mon it, I do think he does some monstrous things. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a book that kind of asks you to look at history uh, in all its complexity, you know, yeah. and not, black and white. I mean, there are some yeah. black and white villains in the book, no doubt, but, but you know, so much of it is, is, is tortured and, and complex, and you feel this. It's fascinating to feel a mixture of, of compassion and disgust or, 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 yeah. or, or with, um, uh, condemnation toward, toward someone mm -hmm. like, you know, Will Andrews Cart Jr., you know, but this is yeah. sort of, this is how we, you know, have to look at history in a way, and this is how the future will look at us, you know. Um, and uh, so much of you know, our world um, is still riven by these these same issues. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I just felt it was um, a book that sort of takes us 
back into the past in in a way that's just not at all simple um, no. and and full of layers and, and and full of conflicting emotions but also a a, a story just a, just an incredibly gripping story because uh you just <laughs> really don't know where it's going to go next <laughs> no one could have invented all this <laughs> you no, know it would have been if you've been writing a novel and you you know sent sent a chapter to your editor saying okay now he's now he's going to Norway and the the Nazis are about to invade <laughs> the editor would say oh come on that's ridiculous <laughs> but it happens yeah it would not be acceptable yeah. as fiction it would not it would not be believable uh, at all yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Uh, thanks so much, Liz. And, and uh, yeah, I just absolutely urge everyone to, to read this, this astonishing, astonishing book. Uh, it, will, it will just give you a different view of, of Los Angeles and, and uh, just this, this, this period of American history and, and kind of our, our whole strange species. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alex. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. That was such a great conversation. Again, Liz Brown and Alex Ross discussing Liz's new book, Twilight Man, which is available now. Um, and yeah, thank you guys so much. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this has been the Skylight Books podcast, Skylit, and I hope everyone has a wonderful day. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.